Thank you for joining me today again for this episode 13 of the Violent Detroit podcast. Uh, this episode was a real treat for me, as most are, um, where I had the pleasure of speaking to someone who was uh, really behind one of my favorite recordings of the early 90s. Uh, I got the chance to speak to Josh Meadows. Uh, he and his brother, along with a couple other fellows, made up the band The Sugar Gliders. And the recording that we're going to speak about today is their 1994 compilation entitled We're All Trying to Get There, which was released on Sarah Records. Now, this compilation really, really brings together a lot of the singles and some of the B-sides from their time with Sarah. And I had the pleasure of speaking with Josh about that, about some of the early recordings and quite a bit about how they got started and who really influenced and really helped nurture them in their earliest years. So without further delay, let's go ahead and get into my discussion with Josh Meadows of the Sugar Gliders, and we're going to speak to him about his and his brother's 1994 compilation release on Sarah, titled We're All Trying to Get There. Something 
boat sailing blindly on a black, black sea. Today, I am super excited to be joined on this episode of the Vinyl Detroit podcast by Josh Meadows of the Sugar Gliders, the Steinbecks, uh, many, many other projects that he's been involved with. Uh, He is joining me from around the world in Australia. I, of course, am here in Detroit. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thanks, Brian. It's really, really exciting to be talking to you. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, you know, your your music and this record in particular that we're going to talk about has has meant a whole lot to me over the years, and uh, it just it's one of those records that kind of came into my life at the right time, and I've listened to it just more than I guess you could ever imagine. Uh, so, you know, I guess I really wanted to focus today on uh, the compilation that came out on Sarah, uh, which was a compilation of singles, A's and B sides, uh, titled "We're All Trying to Get There," and I purchased it. I would say probably, probably pretty close to when it came out. And uh, I still own the CD. I own the record sitting next to me here, as well as all the singles. Um, It's just a fantastic compilation. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that today. So, you know, for those of you not familiar with the Sugar Gliders, uh, I was just, I thought I would ask Josh to spend a little bit of time and uh, share with us the origins of the band. Well, yeah, I guess the, the thing that excites me in talking with you is that it's it's so bizarre to me that these songs that my brother and I wrote such a long time ago in a very different context from the one you live in or that you were growing up in when when you came across this stuff are still touching people. Mm-hmm. So that's that's exciting to me and um, and a bit mysterious and magical too. <laughs> so um, where do, where do I start? I I suppose I could say. Um, my brother Joel and I grew up in that far outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne in the 80s. We were teenagers and um, we lived in a place called Montrose, which was quite a bushy area. Um, it's where the, the suburbs sort of hit the mountainsides and um, nature was really a big part of our teenage years and growing up um, and was yeah, just being immersed in the landscape and getting to know the birds and animals of the area was very important to us. Um, musically, our parents, you know, your parents influence your music, don't they, um, sure. whether you like it or not. And and sometimes that's a rebellion against your parents' music. <laughs> but um, I think, um, you know, our mum and dad were in the, in the 70s were into stuff like Cat Stevens and Joni Mitchell and Carol King and James Taylor. So, you know, really lyrically strong singers sure. and with a folky influence, but also 
a sense of good pop songs and hooks. Um, we also had in Montrose a, a neighbour, uh, Colin, who was a, a big Beatles fan. And I know Joel and I spent a lot of time um, over at Colin's place getting to know those Beatles albums and Colin would sort of train us in, you know, being able to discern which songs were Lennon's and which were McCartney's, and, <laughs> um, you know, being immersed in the the mysteries of um, various Beatles conspiracy theories and um, album cover quirks and all of that stuff. So that was important. Um, and also, of course, the radio of the time, as you know, as we became teenagers and were listening to what was on the radio, we were starting to get excited about the sounds we were hearing from bands like, you know, the Thompson Twins and the Human League and ABC, Haircut 100, The Police, these sorts of bands. Um, uh, And then, you know, as as happens with a lot of people, um, the mainstream starts to lose a bit of its luster when you discover some things that are more on the edges and a bit more, um, I don't know, just a bit more interesting and so when when we came across the smiths and the cure and lloyd cole and the commotions and the postcard bands and jonathan richmond um the house martins those sorts of bands were um really important to us growing up and just thinking about and i think it was those bands that made us suddenly think as probably i was probably 18 and joel 15 or 16 we started to think Oh, we could be part of this, you know. We'd we'd grown up um, in quite a musical family. Our dad was a really good piano player. Uh, he also played trumpet and he played guitar a bit and bass. Um, and and he was in bands and stuff before we were born. Um, and and singing had always been a really big part of our family, uh, singing together. Uh, so I think Joel and I felt we had we we understood a little bit about how music worked but we weren't sort of trained or anything and we were excited by the pop music we were hearing we wanted to express what was going on in our lives we were you know upset about things that were happening around us like um the the bush that we loved getting bulldozed for new housing estates and um we were you know getting sparked by our interest in girls and, (laughs) um, you know, all sorts of things. And so all these things collided, Um, the music, the ability to sing and the thought that we wanted to express ourselves in music. And, you know, at some point we we felt we wanted to start writing songs together. Um, So we we did that. And... um, yeah, I, I read you had sent to me in preparation for this a, a, a quite a lengthy, lengthy biography. And it's funny because like I wrote you back and by the time you had sent it, I mean, it was I should have discovered it already, but I didn't I didn't realize there, there was there's quite a rich history there. And, you know, one thing I guess I would like to ask you a little bit about kind of in follow up to that because you did answer one of my later questions already, so we have some time, um, was this mention of Captain Coco and the role that they played in really your early development and really helping to nurture what you and your brother were doing. 
Yeah, Captain Coco were quite a, a special, important band to us. Um, they, I, I was in university. It must have been my first year at uni. I was studying journalism at RMIT in Melbourne, and I was in a tute with a fella called Dave O'Neill who had a band called Captain Coco, and it was a bit of a um, – they had a brass section and they were um, a good dancey band a bit like in the ilk of madness or a bit heck at 100 or farmer's boys or something like that um and i mentioned to him that my brother and i were making some music um and we got off offered a gig supporting captain coco and we really weren't ready at all (laughs) um but we got together and um we'd wanted to get a band together and joel and i had actually been rehearsing with a couple of friends um but the rehearsals weren't going particularly well and when we got this gig offer joel and i thought we'd better just prepare to do it as the two of us Mm -hmm. because um we thought we could get something passable together so with joel on acoustic guitar and me just with tambourine and shakers and hitting sticks together and stuff um and both of us singing we we did our first gig supporting captain coco and captain coco were so encouraging to us as you know we were just these young boys um they used to play gigs nearly every weekend around melbourne and they started offering us a lot of support slots i think they liked us because we were it was very easy as an acoustic duo for us to set up in front of their big you know set up with (laughs) congas and brass section and everything they liked you Um, because you were convenient (laughs) exactly and we were we were never going to upstage them either because they had such a big sound and we were just a you know acoustic duo basically um but that gave us a lot of experience just in playing gigs hearing your voice amplified and getting used to playing in venues and our songwriting improved and our performance improved a lot as a result of playing with Captain Coco over those early years. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a really great way to get started and a very gentle introduction to the, the rock scene. One of the members of Captain Coco, Adam Dennis, who played trumpet and guitar in the band, was really helpful to us, particularly when it came to recording. Uh, Adam had a four-track machine at his place and he invited us over to try out recording some of our songs and it was such an invaluable thing for Joel and I to start to hear our voices on tape and to hear what worked well and what didn't when recording guitar and percussion and introducing other elements and just that whole the mysteries of multi-track recording started to be opened up to us and the possibilities emerged and we did quite a lot of recording with Adam over those first few years of the Sugar Gliders era. And I'm I'm always thankful to Adam for that. And he became not only a good friend, but also a member of the first lineup of the Steinbecks after the Sugar Gliders finished. Yeah. So so for those of you who who do either I guess discover the Sugar Gliders and and, and Josh and Joel's work through this or uh, I guess are already aware of their work. You should go out and find this article. It's real easy to find. I actually kicked myself for not, but it's, it's he's 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 giving you the abridged version. But 
there's a lot more to it, I think, than that, that does just underscore what he said as far as their Captain Coco's nurturing quality. And, um, you know, it makes me wonder that, you know, without that, you know, would you guys have, have given up? You know, would you have done a show with maybe somebody else and just it would have been painful and terrible and they were mean and, and you and your brother maybe would have given up or or at least been discouraged. So you, you really ran into the right person at the right time or the right folks at the right time. The other thing that I have to share that when I read that article, because I thought it was really it was really cute, actually, but I was picturing you and your younger brother sitting down trying to figure out a band name real frantically. And the article mentioned that, you know, there was short lists and things like that about kind of where you guys wanted to end up in terms of on the shelf at the record store. And you ended up, and I don't know if this is true or not, I, I, I think it is, but you ended up with the band name because you wanted to be somewhere around uh, between like Style Council and the Sundays, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> well, you have to think about these things, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I never did. I mean, I, I played I played in a band with uh, Mario and Rose from Shoestrings back a million years ago. And I, well, Mar, it's Mario and Rose's band. I just helped out. But I wonder if they ever thought about that. I'm going to have to ask them. Actually, they wouldn't have been too far from Style Council Sundays and the Sugar Gliders. <laughs> yeah, that's so what what would they be near? Um, between the Springfields and um, what yeah. would it be? Yeah, that's not a bad uh, place Etienne. either. Between St. Etienne and the Springfields, that's not too bad. Yeah, you could definitely do a lot worse than that. <laughs> um, no, that's a great story. And I think, I think that really helps catch us up to kind of where – where the music started to take off and started to take off on its own. So, you know, there's, there's other stops in the road there, but, you know, I really wanted to focus today on, on the, um, on the compilation. Cause that, that's really, I mean, that's really my favorite and what I've kind of grown to love. And, um, you know, you, you and Joel were obviously signed to Sarah, uh, with the single letter from a lifeboat, lifeboat, sorry, in 1992, um, which we did hear at the open of the show, by the way, too, um, and prior to that, you had released singles on Summershine and Marineville. I, I guess I wanted to know about, um, how did you come about connecting with Sarah and, uh, and, and signing with them and, and, and kind of, if you could take me through that. Well, we've been playing in Melbourne for a year or two and, uh, had, as you say, had singles out, uh, particularly with Summershine, the three singles, and we, we were fans of Sarah Records already. Um, I, I used to have a Saturday morning job at a little record shop called Exposure Records in Melbourne. And it was uh, a shop that used to get a lot of the imports from the UK and the US. And there were copies of, you know, airmail copies of the Melody Maker and NME. Uh, and they had a, a little um, table inside the front door with all of the that week's seven-inch singles laid out on it that, that had come by airmail and, you know, from labels like Creation and Bus Stop and Subway and 4AD and Sarah. Mm -hmm. And I used to listen to those Sarah records and was really excited by them. Uh, I was a big fan of uh, the Field Mice and the Orchids particularly and Another Sunny Day. Mm -hmm. um, so we were fans of, of the bands and also fans of Sarah because already it was clear that there was something really special about this label and it was, I think, you know, Matt and Claire's ethos came through in their the inserts. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, and some of the things that they, the accompanying things around the, the music. And it was clear that they were, you know, they were anti-corporate, they were anti-war, they were pro-nature and they were feminist and socialist and all of those things connected with us. And, you know, we wanted to, we, you know, at that time we were, we very much wanted to change the world one pop song at a time. And it felt <laughs> like Sarah was, that was their view of the world as well. Uh, so we were fans. Um, and in that, some of those early Sugar Gliders gigs, we used to occasionally play uh Please Rain Fall by the Sea Urchins. Mm-hmm. And we also used to do Carol Ann by the Orchids. Oh, nice. Um, so we were we were fans, no doubt about it. Um, and we had, we'd written, I guess the truth is we felt like we weren't quite ready for Sarah um, in those early days because we, we felt our stuff wasn't quite good enough. <laughs> um, but when we wrote Letter from a Lifeboat and uh, we, we did feel like we'd, you know, in Melbourne, it was, let's remember, this was the grunge era yep. and there was a lot of really noisy, arrogant pub bands that were, that was the mainstay of the, the music scene at the time in Melbourne and probably in, in lots of cities around the world. Yep. And we did not fit in with that at all. And as you alluded to, we were very lucky to have Captain Coco sort of taking us under their wings. Um, and... I think um, we'd come to a point where we felt we wanted to um, do something different away from Melbourne. And, you know, our dream would be to sign to Sarah. We had sent, we'd sent a couple of our Summershine singles to Matt and Claire, not saying, would you sign us, but just to say, this is what we're doing at the moment. And then when we, we wrote and recorded Letter from a Lifeboat with our own money um, at a good, like a, a small but but good studio in Melbourne. And we were really proud of it and happy with it and the B-sides. And we sent that, a cassette of that to Bristol and um, said to Matt and Claire, here's, here's our latest offering, you know, would you release it? Would you be interested in it? And they had actually... We found out with a phone call on my 22nd birthday um, <laughs> from Claire saying that they, they did like it and that we, we they wanted us on the label. So that was, you know, a, a real thrill for us. Yeah, oh, no doubt. I mean, especially since you were a fan, you know, that just makes it, I think, that much more important. So, you know, I wanted to follow up on that question because, you know, did they ever share with you really where your sound fit so you know i have a question later on we kind of talk a little bit about the press's reaction to sarah but yet their reaction to you was quite a bit different uh i mean do you think did they ever share to you like kind of what how what they saw in in your music or 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 that really never came up yeah no i don't i don't really know it'd be a good question for matt or claire Um, i should have asked i should have asked claire (laughs) (laughs) um i I don't know i mean i could guess i i feel like we were sort of politically in sync with them Mm -hmm. if um but also i mean i i hope that they they just liked what we were writing and um saw something that yeah we certainly it was different from from the other bands on the label uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, we got some really, really nice reviews. Um, 
and I felt like the reviews that we got in the enemy and the melody maker were in a lot of ways better than what we were getting from the equivalent press in Australia. Although, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like we were um, derided in Australia. We weren't. Sure. We, we had some some nice um, things said about us at the time as well. Um, but yeah, I don't really know what it was yeah. that Matt and Claire saw in us, but I'm glad they saw something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they, they I mean, as you, I'm sure you, I mean, you're well aware just that that British press was ruthless to them. And uh, obviously, as, as Claire has mentioned, she doesn't really feel like she helped matters by, you know, striking back on multiple occasions. But it, it seemed like when I was reading the reviews of, you know, your singles and obviously the compilation, it, it was and then there was a I think it was a review or something of a show and it was all glowingly positive. And I don't know if it represented a, a bit of a, de a departure or a change in gear for the label or something, but. Um, the, the press seemed like it was almost a hundred percent positive. And so, yeah, I just kind of, kind of was wondering about that. You know, this, yeah, this we, oh, go ahead, go ahead, got, please. Yeah. We were disturbed by the reviews panning a lot of Sarah bands that we, yeah. we saw because it seemed, it was so unfair. It was, yep. um, and it was, it came out of this very narrow mindset. Um, and the, the irony is that of course, a lot of, of those magazines you know now talk glowingly about sarah and it makes yeah. makes the lists of the cool record labels and stuff whereas um at the time they were so scathing and it's it's such a shame because uh, it makes yeah. you think imagine if they there had been the support in the press um imagine how the label might have might have grown but then again maybe it's perfect that it only released the 100 singles and and then quit that's true that's true you know it, it it's it, it's representative of the of the time and, and there's a question later on that i'm going to ask and you started to to talk a little bit about it about the other music that was coming out then and you know there was what they were doing and what you guys were doing was was so vastly different than what was popular particularly in the uk at the time and you know it was it was easier, I'm sure, to get on that bandwagon. And you got a you got a couple new Sarah releases in at the Melody Maker NME office, and you, you give them a quick listen. You go, hey, same stuff I've heard before, and then you just you pan them, and um, mm -hmm. it's just very unfair. And and the, it seemed like as I read the reviews uh, on the later singles and the later bands and things like that, it definitely started to to soften up a bit. And I'm not sure, you know, I I don't remember that time that well, but. I'm not sure what exactly caused that, but yeah, it was really unfair in, in that, that beginning to middle stages of the label. And I don't know, it's too bad. You know, mm -hmm. this compilation though did get really good, uh, obviously reviews and, and press. I'd like to kind of take a step back and, and, and just make sure that you had mentioned some of the influences that you had uh, growing up with your parents and your brother. If you were to point to a couple that maybe you know, were really influenced you on during this era when you were making these singles, which obviously came out as, uh, as the compilation. Is there anything in particular that, that you recall? Um, uh, it's sort of hard to know. I mean, I, I feel like everything that's come before had joined up and was, was influencing us uh -huh. throughout that time. Um, I think if we'd been in, in England, we would probably have been more influenced by what was going on at the time there. 
Um, but as we were so far removed from from that scene, it meant that we were able to bring our own ideas um, to the things that we, to the stuff that we loved, and um, create something that was unique. Yeah. So you, yeah, you you benefited from not geographically being close to that scene, and and I would agree with that. You know, when I listen to to your work versus a lot of that kind of UK Europe. Yours was definitely a, a departure uh, in, in that label's uh, uh, arc, I, w I guess you would say. And um, so it, it, that's interesting. Maybe maybe Captain Coco had a big influence on you guys. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that maybe they did. <laughs> um, so you know, the, the great answer, great questions, great answers. I really appreciate everything, Josh. So far, we're going to take us listen to another track here. Um, this is the A side from the second Sarah single which was Sarah 67 titled 17. Um, to me, it's just, it, it's really a classic, innocent, young love type of, of, of song. I don't like to talk too much about the song in front of the artist because you wrote it. It always makes me feel a little uncomfortable, but frankly, it's, it was chosen by me for one of the tracks that I get to play during the show. So I wanted to share with everyone listening. So we're going to go ahead and give the song 17 a listen. There's a whisper through the hills Where I've been so many times But never so scared I know it will be different tonight Just look at the weather Fickle heart, don't let me be Subject to her Yeah. 
so many of the songs, you know, so I, I guess I was listening to this, this compilation quite a bit in preparation for this and just rediscovering my love for it and, and it's, it's breath and it's, it's just how, how it, it, it's the songs are, are, some of them are quite a bit different. I mean, there's trumpets, there's harmonicas, there's uh, a song where it sounds like, and we're going to talk about it later where you're gathered around a microphone. It has a different, a lot of different senses to it. But one of the one of the things that I noticed in this, and you mentioned it earlier, just during your upbringing, was there was a lot of connections to nature, and there was a very adventurous type of tone when it comes to, I guess, interacting with the world. Uh, is is that what it was? Just that upbringing? I mean, or how did that make its way into your songwriting? I suppose our songwriting has always just been a reflection of where we were at as people in the world. And yes, nature has always been really important to us. Uh, and I feel like humans' reliance on nature is something that is not as widely acknowledged as it should be. You know, people seem to think that because we're these, you know, modern technologically advanced societies that we don't need nature anymore. But that's crap, of course. Mm. You know, we, everything that everything that we do relies on nature whether it's you know clean air or clean water or you know healthy ecosystems around us you know pollination is is a function of nature operating properly and crops are only pollinated because we've got bees and insects that are doing that work mm -hmm. and, um so yeah that that sort of stuff absolutely um imbued our understanding of of what we were writing um, but also, yeah, we just love the, I think Joel and I are both um, quite sensory people. And so, you know, writing about the, the feelings that are aroused by being, you know, up in the mountains or on a beach or in the bush observing a bird, you know, those things, those feelings are stuff that we tried to capture in song as well. Um, and that's been absolutely something that was in the Sugar Gliders and in the Steinbecks as well. Yeah, and I, I had, obviously, I've owned this album since it came out, and it's really only been recently that I, I guess that I kind of wove all those lyrical parts together, that there was this nature, obviously there's there's always, you know, a, a, a romance and a, a love to, to your music, but when it's interweaved with the... Uh, with the, the nature aspects. I thought that was really neat. I can't believe I, I missed that all these years. <laughs> well, it's sort of like the backdrop to a lot of um, songs rather than being in the foreground. But yeah. um, I think that's how, how the world is often, you know, where we spend our time fussing about money and relationships and um, various concerns in our lives. But all the while, you know, out our days are being influenced by the weather and, and the landscapes around us and the, the birds and animals that are also part of the, um, the world that we live in. So, yeah, yeah um, I think that's it. If our songs reflect that in some way, that's good. Yeah. It's definitely changed the way I listen to the album and listen to the singles just now knowing that. And I was going back and just reading some of the lyrics too. And I, I guess, 
I'm not good with lyrics. I, I, and I, you know, this came up in a previous podcast that, you know, everybody listens to, I think, music differently, you know, whether you key in on the rhythm or the bass, drums, guitar, melody, lyrics. Uh, I, I'm a melody guy. So I, you know, I, I, I key into that. Whereas, you know, my, my really good friend, he keys in on the rhythm and the bass. And then, you know, there's people I've talked to who the lyrics are just everything. So it, it, for me, I have to really go back and read them because I have a tough time following along. And then when I do, it's just all these lights start going off of, of just connections that, you know, oh my, I always thought they were saying this, but they're saying that, and that makes much more sense. And now, you know, with the melody, it's complete. And uh, I had that experience over the last couple of weeks kind of preparing for this. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, I'd like to spend one minute. I always like to talk about the artwork uh, for the albums or the compilations or the singles, whatever I'm talking about, because I think they play a very, very important role in the the imagery for the music that's kind of supporting Capsule. I'd like to talk about the cover of the album, and I, was, I have it right next to me here, and I was looking at it again today, and so I thought I'd better look at the back and make sure there was no credits listed before I asked you this question, but... Um, I guess is do I see a bomber on the front cover? And I guess if I do or I don't, uh, if you could maybe share the inspiration behind the design. Yeah, sure. It's a um, it's a picture of a an aircraft with a sort of radar antenna sticking out the front of it. Um, it's from the Second World War, but I don't know. I can't remember exactly where we got it from. But I, I think you know I was particularly drawn to the the camouflage design on the side of it, that wavy line, which is reminiscent of a river from above. You know, it looks like a winding tropical river. And, I, you know, some of my early memories, um, Joel and I lived in West Papua with our parents for four years when we were boys. And I remember flying in light planes above the, the tropical jungle and seeing rivers winding their way through the through the swamps, um, looking a bit like that. And I was I remember being drawn to that when when I first saw this picture. Um, and I don't know, there's something about the the warfare and the the hints of nature on it that are just such a clash. Um, that, I don't know, it just, I don't know, something about it um, really appealed to to us and mm-hmm. decided to use it as the cover for the album. Yeah, I'm going to admit I'm pretty blown away right now because I'm looking at it while you're talking and I'm picturing, you know, the rivers and obviously on our last question talking about the role of nature. I always thought that, you know, just based on, on the title of the compilation, uh, you know, we're all trying to get there, that there was, you know, some tie into trap. I mean, obviously it's, it's a, it's a war plane, but you know, some sort of, of mode of travel first. And, um, you know, th- that's interesting about the, the river. Cause now I can't stop looking at it to be honest with you. You know, I also, I also thought that that radar on the front at times I've looked at this and thought that the plane was actually hitting like a, a like a tower of some sort. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that now. But um, yeah, I believe it's a some sort of um, radar system attached to it or antenna for some mm-hmm. for some purpose. But I, I don't know about it really. Yeah. No, With that... the, the the title of the album, um, we you're right to say that um, it's about travel in a way because 
or, or rather than being about travel, it's about seeking a destination, you know, mm-hmm. and um, we we pinch the, the title from our friends, um, the band Ripe, mm-hmm. uh, who released the very first single ever on Summershine Records. Their first single was called We're All Trying to Get There. And it was a um, completely overlooked single. I think from memory, the pressing was 500, but about 400 copies got destroyed in a some sort of um, flooding accident. Oh, um, or, oh, no, sorry. I think I've got that wrong. I think it was a pressing plant accident. Oh. Um, but, um, so they only got 100 copies released or something like that. And um, But we loved it, and it was this fantastic jangly guitar track, and we always felt like it needed to get more prominent, so we pinched it for that purpose. But also <laughs> because it did encapsulate something about the songs that we were writing at in that period when we were on Sarah Records, that um, a lot of them were to do with seeking something greater and striving for a destination, but knowing that you might not get there um, Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's not worth having a go and and trying. Um, And I think, yeah, that, that title for us just captured something that was in a lot of our songs um that that tapped into that sort of theme so how how old were you and your brother when when you were recording these singles and that obviously ultimately came out as the compilation i was 22 23 yeah. uh joel was um 19 and 20 wow you know it, it it comes out in the music and even in i was just thinking this while you were giving me kind of the background on that there is there's just this youthful positivity and uh what's the other word just i guess it's it's like a positive outlook on things to come and it's something that as you get older you know you it it tends to fade a bit or uh you know it's harder to to recognize but when you're you know 19 to 22 it's it's very easy to get you know to be positive and to be looking forward and, and looking for that destination at that point so um I just I love that story by the way. That's really really good. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we we did we were sort of in that age when you're very alive to the possibilities of life, mm-hmm. um, and a song like Seventeen probably captures that. You know, the just feeling immersed in the moment and excited by um, the possibilities that lie ahead. You don't know what they are, but you know that that life is full of all these infinite possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there are also songs that are actually pretty gloomy if you read the lyrics, like Letter from a Lifeboat, which is sort of this, you know, post-apocalyptic picture of, of a damaged world crying out to be rescued, you know. Um, so, But I think youth allows you to plumb those depths as well as, um, you know, think about, the grand possibilities that that could be ahead of you in life um and i think you know maybe that in that little period joel and i were able to capture some of those feelings for ourselves yeah i think you did uh i think you i mean i think that's exactly the feeling that i get when i listen to it um so you know i like to kind of talk about our next track a little bit ahead of time because i did i did mention it a bit earlier 
to me, it's always been a, a, I mean, there's no, there's no poor track on this compilation. If anybody hasn't heard it, um, I mean, it is literally solid from beginning to end, but there's one that always stuck out to me and that's unkind. Uh, you know, the rest of the tracks are, are very well produced, well recorded, uh, done by the likes of Ian cat and a lot of the folks that you've worked with, uh, you know, down, down where you live, but unkind was different because it, it always sounded like to me, uh, the song that, you know, you have, you obviously have, have written and recorded a bunch of music. So there's like this beginning stage where things are very much a sketch or an idea. And then it goes through this, this like synthesis, and then it becomes the final product. Well, it feels like kind of that middle of the road stop. And I just wanted a little bit more about the story behind that. Yeah, it's, I mean, we've always liked really raw sounding things like Jonathan Richmond's albums in, in the mid eighties that, that sound very raw. Um, and yeah, that song Unkind, we recorded it with Jody Mishra from White Town um, when we were in England in December 1992. And I'd been a, Jody and I had been pen friends for a couple of years prior to that. Um, when I worked at Exposure Records, I remember the White Town, first White Town singles coming in and I really liked them. And there was something about his blend of um, romance and socialism and social comment that really appealed to me. And I remember writing to him because he had his address on the back of the seven inches. And um, I wrote to him and he wrote back and we started this correspondence. So we were friends already by the time the Sugar Gliders toured England. And we, we went to Jyoti's place in Derby and um, he very kindly put us up. And at, at that time, our travelling party was me and Joel and our bass player, Robert Cooper, and Joel and my cousin, Ilka, who was travelling with us just because she really wanted to. Um, it was the first time Joel and I had ever been to the UK, and, in fact, the first time we'd been out of the Southern Hemisphere. And Ilka, too, was, um, you know, keen to travel. And so she came with us to England and travelled around with us. Um, now, when when we went to Derby, um, we recorded, I think we recorded three songs with Jody, and two of them turned up as the B-sides for the Trumpet Play single. Um, and we they recorded to, I think it was four-track cassette that, that Jody had at that time. So they're fairly basic recordings. And with Unkind, we did just want to capture the feeling of a few people sitting around in a room singing. Um, so Joel and I were singing, but you can also hear Jody and Ilka um, in the background doing backing vocals on that on that particular track. And yeah, I, I still love it. Did you did you did you and your brother ever record a like a studio version, or was that the only one really? No, that's the only one. We'd occasionally do it live, but we never recorded a, a sort of polished version of it. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad it just lives there. I. I just think that's the perfect spot. It's the perfect length. I mean, you know how it is. I mean, it's hard to capture that magic again. You would, it'd be very difficult to ever get those individuals in a room again. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've talked a lot about the song Unkind. And so 
I wanted to obviously share that with everyone listening here. Uh, like I mentioned before, I just feel like it it kind of represented that that spot between a, a sketch and a finished track. But I think you know I think Josh really explained it much better than I did. Uh, I love that that it was included on the compilation as well. So let's go ahead and give the track "Unkind" a spin. <laughs> I've never known such desperation Meeting as we did at the railway station I've never met someone unkind You've read books that tell you what to do this kind of situation But me, I've never felt so shy I, I'm obviously a big Field Mice fan. I kicked off this webinar, or this webinar, this podcast a few months ago. I don't have a webinar. And uh, I, I intentionally decided to do, you know, the Field Mice's Coastal Compilation as my first episode. Uh, it, it's really rough right now when I listen to it, but that album meant a lot to me. Uh, Bobby's music has always meant a lot to me. And so if Bobby's music means a lot to me, then the work of Ian Cat must as well. Um, for those of you who maybe aren't as familiar, uh, Ian's worked with, you know, a bunch of different artists. I mean, he worked with uh, the Sugar Gliders. He's worked with St. Etienne. He's worked with the Field Mice and plenty of others. And, you know, you got that, that rare opportunity to work with him on the Operand single. Um, could you share maybe a little bit about what that was like? It was in that short time that we were in England. And before we, we left, we'd, um, we'd written and done demos of the three songs for that single, Operand, Corn Circles, and Theme from Boxville. But we had them ready and we knew that we wanted to record them while we were over there. And we'd written to Matt and Claire asking if there was any possibility that we could do them with Ian Cat because we we also were fans of of his recording methods and just the, the sound that he was getting, particularly on those Field Mice records. Um, the sort of intimacy and the use of, um, he used drum machines really beautifully. Um, he was also using samples. Um, we, we were using drum machines as well, but not really dabbling with samples so we were interested in if he had some ways to incorporate some things into into those songs we were interested in trying that out and yeah we were really wrapped when Matt and Claire arranged for I think it was two days recording and one day mixing with Ian Cat so we I remember you know we traveled on the tube <laughs> from where we were staying in Lewisham out to uh, Mitcham and uh, did, recorded at, at his house um, and with quite like quite a small setup, but um, some really nice instruments and amps that he had there for us to use. And it was great having his his influence on that that single. You know, I think Arparan stands up as one of our better songs from that period or from any from any sugar gliders period. And um it's in a large part. I mean, it, I think there's a few reasons for why it, it does stand up. And well, one is the the song itself, the tune 
originally came from our friend Mark Murphy, the singer and songwriter from Ripe. And he, at that time, Ripe was starting to turn into a much more intense, noisy band. They recorded um, they recorded an amazing album called The Plastic Hassle, which came out, I think it came out on um, Beggar's Banquet in the UK. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's quite a quite a stunning piece of work um but mark would occasionally write these very poppy tunes which didn't suit ripe's music at that time and he would occasionally offer them to us um which we accepted with open arms because he was such a great songwriter um and Arpran was one of those so we started from a really good good little tune that mark gave us and then we built on that and wrote wrote lyrics so that was one thing it had going for it um and then ian cat brought some studio wizardry which we we didn't have access to previously and and also just a sense of the aesthetic that we were after i think because he he'd worked with um the field mice and saint etienne and yeah he just had a sense of um what we were aiming for i think really well so um and he did he did add his um samples and stuff particularly to theme from boxville on the b side which is um probably the one of the more produced songs that we did Mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah i mean i can i can definitely hear it on you know his influence on both of those tracks i don't think i would have known it had i not read it but it was one of those things where uh, you know, once I, I, I heard it, I read that he was involved and I heard it again. I, I started to hear some of those elements. Was he, was he still record? Was it, isn't the story go that, you know, he recorded in his, in his parents' house. I mean, is that where he was when you recorded him or was he in his own home? Yeah, it was, I think it was his parents' house. I'm pretty okay. sure he, you know, he had this upstairs room um, and there were, you know, at one point we had to wait for quite a while to do a vocal take because someone was mowing a lawn outside and you could, <laughs> could hear it. So um, I, I think um, the lawnmower on the front of Arparan is actually, of the single, is uh, just a little nod to that. Really? That's interesting because I always wondered what, what the lawnmower meant. <laughs> I, I don't think it was anything more than that, although maybe Joel, I should ask Joel about that because that's his his drawing. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Uh, so, you know, we, we kind of talked a little bit about, there's a couple of themes. I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to ask you this question, but, uh, you've touched on it a couple of times in different, in different dimensions. So I, I think I will kind of bring it together. You know, I was reading this, we had mentioned that there was that, that long biography about you guys that was really, really good. And so I was, I was skimming through it and actually was reading it and there was a, a, a review of a show that you did when you made, I believe you guys made when you went to the UK, which by the way, you guys did a tremendous amount in a short period of time. I think I read you guys were there for something like 35 days, but I could not believe how much you actually did while you were there. <laughs> um, yeah, we, re- we really did pack in the gigs and recording <laughs> and as well as visiting museums and things like that. So wow. it was a great time. Yeah, I was getting tired just reading it, but there was a there was a review of a show that you did with uh, Saturn Five and Heavenly, and you know I thought it was really really thoughtful and you know like I mentioned earlier you know and we talked about some of those early reviews of of the Sarah bands and and the label were really really harsh, 
but this one was really interesting. I, I thought I'd kind of read it first and then it's really short, but then I want to ask you a question that really kind of, I guess, looks at that time period. And we talked about this earlier as well and how different what was popular, you know, in terms of like the radio and in terms of the magazines from what you guys were doing, but yet you found success in it. So the, the, the quote came from Melody Maker. It was December 12th, 92. And uh, the quote goes, the songs present themselves not as confessionals, but as excerpts from the gliders' private lives. The musical feeling may be one of hazy indulgence, the calm chords and sweet melody lines resembling a laid back pavement. But listening to these songs is like eavesdropping on another close, another's closest secrets, which I thought was a really cool quote. And it, it kind of leads me to my question. So we had talked about earlier that during that time that you and your brother were really, really, uh, really working with the, you know, I guess really being the sugar gliders, uh, it was, it was kind of cool in the early nineties to, to kind of be apathetic and really not care. And, you know, it came through in the music, came through in the fashion and the magazines and everything, but yet your songs were very optimistic. They had just a breeziness to them that I always kind of connected with was, was, were you aware of that, of that kind of counter, uh, I guess counter, I don't want to say counterculture, but that that other scene was really happening, I guess, at the same time yours was. Could you maybe, if you did at all, is there any sort of, like, was there any sort of consciousness about that? Absolutely, there was. It was very prominent at the time, that whole whole attitude in music that, you know, life doesn't matter, things don't nothing works um it's just meaningless um i don't care and we hated that attitude you know for us um you know life is such a precious thing and the moments that we have are so fleeting the relationships that we have we've got to treasure them because they're not gonna not nothing will last um life is ephemeral but let's let's do the best we can and be be who the best people we can be in the short time we have on this earth you know that was sort of the the difference in the attitude so we were completely countercultural in it in a sense um and yeah i think um you know rather than positivity because often it, often i think our songs were um pointing up injustices in the world and things that aren't right and um, and just stuff in relationships that's not working and all of that. Um, rather than positivity, I think it's more that, that we just wanted sincerity. You know, we wanted honesty and um, that was what we valued rather than this, you know, don't care, cynicism, dismissiveness of, of caring about things and idealism. We, that was anathema to us we wanted to go in a, in a completely different direction so um yeah yeah that's no that's that is a absolutely fantastic answer and and when when i was thinking about that question that's like the exact type of answer i would have hoped for uh because obviously my biggest fear was you would have said well you know i really wasn't even aware of it but you were and i think we all were i mean at least here in the States, I mean, you know, it was, it was like all the grunge and all that just, just 
apathetic bravado that, you know, a lot of people connect with. And, and if they connect with it, I, I, I'm fine with it. I mean, go for it if it's your thing. For me, I never really did. And uh, I think that's probably why I was always attracted to, you know, bands like the Sugar Gliders or the Field Mice or whomever I was listening to at the time because I didn't want to have a part of that. I think my outlook on things was much more in line with you and your brothers in terms of, you know, I don't know. I guess I would say I was very optimistic that, you mm-hmm. know, the future was ahead and there was a lot to look forward to and every day was new. And that other side just to me never really represented that. So I just never really connected with it. I have very little music from that scene, uh, maybe besides some of the the real mile marker albums that, you know, I guess you kind of have to own, but um you know, I really, I guess I really connected more with what you guys were doing, what Sarah was doing. Uh, you know, even like, I mean, even there was, there was quite, a, there were quite a few labels in the States here that were doing really good stuff like that. And I guess I connected with that as well. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, we're going to hear another track here, which frankly is probably one of my um, favorites by what, by you and your brother, which you guys did. Uh, it shows up right near the end of the compilation. It was a, a B side to one of the singles and um it's it's actually called 90 days of moths and rust and not only does the name always intrigue me but i just again i mentioned i'm a melody guy and i always loved it we're going to go ahead and give the track 90 days of moths and rust a spin
So uh, we're getting towards the end of the interview, and and you know I've really appreciated the time you spent with me. Um, very very kind, very cordial, very transparent, and um, you know it's it's been really really good at least for me. Hopefully it's going okay for you as well. <laughs> it's been really it's it's really nice to to talk about these songs, which um, you know were written such a long time ago in a very different context from. The way the world is now but um it's nice to go back and and have a listen and a talk about them yeah for sure so that actually ties into my next question uh, pretty closely you know looking back on on that era of time you know you were you were very young your brother was obviously much younger uh is there is there anything maybe that you would have done a little differently if you had the chance to to do something differently whether it be you know with your music or with these singles or the relationships that you had related to those is there anything maybe you just if you had a do-over you would have done a little differently i mean i listen to some of the sounds and think oh that's so dated (laughs) um particularly some of the drum machine sounds that we were using um you know they can't help but sound very much of their era but Mm -hmm. you know that's uh, i think Maybe 10 years ago, I was a bit more sensitive to that than I am now. Now I just sort of think, oh, well, that's, that, was, that was how we did things then. And um, that's just part of the artifact that's been left yeah. behind. So I don't so much regret that. Um, I mean, I do have little regrets about perhaps the way, the way that we chose to do things when if we devoted a bit more energy to the band and didn't have so many other things going on in our lives at the same time, maybe we, you know, would have, I mean, we, we were pretty productive, but I think maybe if we'd spent a bit more time, we would have been a bit more considered in what we, what we made. And perhaps we would have come out with some, you know, better products in the end. But, you know, again, I'm not hugely regretful about that. Um, I do have, um, one specific regret which relates to that gig that you mentioned where we played in england with saturn five and heavenly and um it was fantastic to play with those bands and they were both brilliant and i remember at that gig you know it was, I, I was a, a big fan of amelia fletcher from her from tulula gosh and from heavenly and um i met her that night for the first time and that was, you know, exciting to meet someone whose music I'd admired for a long time. And I remember at the sound check, um, she said, oh, we're going to do one of the songs from our new album, C is the Heavenly Option, which is a uh, duet 
and would you like to sing the male part of it when we do it? And the truth is I'd, I'd, that album hadn't been out for very long and mm-hmm. I'd only heard it maybe once. And I, I, was, I said, I don't know it well enough to do it. And she said, oh, it's pretty straightforward. You know, I could write out the lyrics if you want. And, and I, I was just too nervous to take it on <laughs> at, that late, at that late moment. So I said no. And in the end, they just sang it, you know, among the band members um, when they did it live that night. But I've got a huge regret. I wish I had known that song well enough to be able to perform it with Amelia Fletcher. That would have been a real thrill. Yeah, I mean, you talk about a, a I would say, I mean, it's, at least in my opinion, I mean, it is one of those hallmark moments for, obviously, for Heavenly and then as well as for the label. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's funny because <laughs> it's funny you bring this up because I'm I'm a big beat happening fan also. Okay, yeah. Uh, but it but you know you if if people aren't used to Calvin's voice, um, you know it's it's a little it's a little shocking at first. <laughs> uh, it's it's such a great song. I love it's it great. so much, and oh. and I've grown to love it even more. And so my regret has even deepened as oh. the years have gone on. But. And of course, my voice is about two octaves higher than Calvin. Right. I would have loved to have had a go at, at performing it. Oh, that would have been so great. That is that is a really good regret story. I mean, I guess as far as regret stories go, that's a that's a good one. Uh, you know, I guess as we kind of close up here, we I only really have one more question for you, um, but I kind of wanted to to just lay out a couple things. Well, particularly one thing that I was very surprised about was that the period of the Sugar Gliders, in terms of the the Sarah output, which is really what my focus is here today, was really only not even really two years. And when I think back on on that, it just maybe it's that it's that effect of youth, but it just felt like that period was so much longer than that. And I was very surprised to see that. Obviously, you and your brother, you know, did this project for I think I read somewhere around five years, but the the time that I was most aware of it and when it was having the greatest effect on me was like less than two years. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's wow. it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Um, and I think it was because we were young and just coming up with so many ideas. We were writing songs constantly and recording whenever we could and, and trying to get things out as quickly as possible. Um, but, yeah, it is it is amazing because um, w- when I think about how long it takes me to do musical things these days, <laughs> um, it's such a stark contrast. Yeah, it's 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 that it, it seems to keep coming up in most of the episodes I've done is it's just it's youth and it's it's just a different perspective. It's a different even like you talked about time. I mean, just when you're 22 or 21, I mean, time just doesn't it doesn't really exist. I mean, you just you you get up when you want and you stay up late and you for the most part, you do what you want. And, and as you know, I mean, as you get older, I think we're in similar in age. I mean things just get more structured and more rigid and the time just happens to race by so much more. And when you're younger, it's just not like that. So that's a, that's really interesting. I guess lastly, my last question for you today is um, would you mind sharing what you're up to? Maybe get the, um, the listeners and myself just up to speed on what you've been doing. And, and if you could maybe a little bit on what your brother's been up to as well. Well, musically, Joel and I haven't done anything as the Steinbecks for a while now. Mm -hmm. Um, Last time we played a, a show was in February 2020, mm-hmm. um, and we hadn't recorded any new material since, I think, 2014. So it's been quite a while. 
Um, musically, I've been doing some collaborations with good long-term friends. I did an album as the Bell Streets with my good friend Nick Batterham from the Earthmen. Uh, he and I, you know, played a lot of gigs together over the years, and we'd often said to each other after gigs, "Oh, we should do, you know, we should write some songs together sometime." And it, it took us until 2019 <laughs> to actually <laughs> start doing it. But um, we wrote an album of songs together and recorded them in Nick's beautiful studio. He's an, an audio engineer by profession now, oh, nice. and they're really. I'm really pleased with how that album, the Bell Streets album Monument, has come out. So I'm very proud of that. And it was released uh, on Pop Boomerang Records in Australia. And it's on Bandcamp and everything. Nice. Um, then in the last year or so, I've I've been collaborating with another former member of the Earthmen. That's Matt Sigley. And he and I have been musical collaborators in, in different arrangements um matt's been in the steinbeck's various lineups of the steinbeck's he's also a really talented musician particularly with synthesizers and the the collaboration i've done with him we call ourselves leaf mosaic and we've mm. released three singles just on Bandcamp at the moment and we've got more coming out um and it's it's more of a synth pop feel and um yeah that's been just excellent to collaborate with him and do something that's taking me a bit out of my comfort zone um, mm -hmm. matt's doing writing the music i'm writing the lyrics and um that's just been a lot of fun and i'm you know looking for we've got a, a bunch of songs that we're working on at the moment so that's been really good and would you guys I mean, I don't, I don't know what it's like in Australia right now, but I mean, would you ever think about playing some local shows with some of that? Yeah, I don't know. With um, was it just a studio project? Leaf Mosaic's probably just a studio thing because yeah. we we don't want to put any limits on what we do sure. studio wise, thinking that we might have to reproduce it live. Um, the Bell Streets was a, has, you know, we we were all geared up to do live shows and we were a victim of of the COVID lockdowns in mm -hmm. early 2020 we actually had album launches all planned for melbourne and castlemaine where i live mm -hmm. which is in central victoria um you know we had the had the posters printed and all oh. ready to go but um they yes. got cancelled and we've never been able to um <clears throat> to reschedule those so uh and nick has moved on to doing he, he's got a a new solo album out called Lovebirds, which he's um, preparing to do gigs for at the moment. So the time doesn't feel quite right for the Bell sure. Street, but, but maybe it might be down the track. I'd love to play some of those songs live with Nick and the band. Yeah, no, that sounds like it'd be really good. I gotta, I'm gotta, i going to hop on Bandcamp tonight and pick some of that up. Uh, you know, Josh, thanks again for joining me today. It, it's really been my pleasure speaking to you. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at, at the record uh, again, we're all trying to get there. The compilation of singles by the Sugar Gliders. Uh, it's just meant so much to me over the years. And just to have the opportunity to speak to you uh, has been solely my pleasure. And I really thank you. Uh, thank you for your enthusiasm and for your thoughtful questions, Brian. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, so we're going to close out this discussion with Josh uh, Meadows from the Sugar Gliders. Uh, with the song that we spoke about earlier on, uh, Operan, uh, which, again, he worked, he and his brother worked with Ian Cat on the production and recording of this song. 
Uh, it features really one of my favorite lyrics, uh, which I'd like to read as we close out the show. Um, I think it's really, really poignant in terms of what we've talked about today. And I'm going to quote his lyrics in front of him. It's probably a little uncomfortable, but um, there's something in the striving that is worth holding on to. And I really felt like that said it all in, in kind of the closing of this interview and hearing this song Afarans. So again, Josh, thank you. And we're going to go ahead and give that song a listen. enjoyed today's episode of the vinyl detroit podcast where i had the pleasure of speaking to josh meadows he and his brother made up along with some other lads the sugar gliders and we spoke today at length about their 1994 compilation on sarah records titled we're all trying to get there i would definitely suggest trying to either stream this pick up the cd uh, I believe they reissued some of the uh, singles on a on another label, which is escaping me right now. But whatever you're going to do, please hear the Sugar Gliders uh, during this era particularly. I just really, really connected with their music. Uh, Josh was fantastic. He was very gracious. Uh, it was a little bit challenging because he's in Australia and I'm here in, in Detroit. So it took a little bit of logistics to pull this off, but... I really appreciated him taking the time and being very, very patient as we pulled it together. As always, 
You can hear this and other episodes of the Vinyl Detroit podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. That may be something like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and others. As always, I love hearing feedback from the listeners. I've got a lot of great feedback already on this show. Um, You can do that, obviously, through the email, uh, or you can leave a rating or or some sort of a review. My email would be vinyldetroit.podcasts at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to respond very, very quickly indeed. Um, So with that, we're going to close out today's episode of the Vinyl Detroit podcast, where I had the pleasure of speaking to Josh Meadows of the Sugar Gliders. And we're going to hear the final track from We're All Trying to Get There, which happens to be one of my favorite tracks by them. And it's titled Top 40 Sculpture. It's actually one of the Sarah releases, Sarah A-sides. And uh, I just think it's a fantastic song. It's so uplifting and so inspiring, somewhat to what Josh talked about during the interview. So again, thank you for listening. And we're going to go ahead and hear one more song from the Sugar Gliders. And that's Top 40 Sculpture. Thanks for listening. See the world through multicolored glasses. Get a happy view. Get a life too. See the things you thought were ever constant. Strength is made perfect in weakness.